This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. All right. And we are back with another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I am Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Kevin, how are you doing this evening? Howdy. I'm super. Never better, Brad. I'm having a a wonderful fall. The leaves have fallen here in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm ready for a, a long night. We got a long night planned, don't we? We we do yeah so we're we're gonna do things a, a little differently this evening and mo and there's a couple of reasons for that we're gonna have an extra long I guess it's an after dark Patreon exclusive episode that you can if you sign up at at uh, Patreon.com/slash/darkpod that you can uh, you can get exclusive access to you and a few hundred other people uh, hopefully. Uh, Oh, but more. Be- so many more. Yeah. So 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 it sounds like what we're doing is we're going to do a core episode for the mm-hmm. the general audience here. Yes. And you've also prepared for the the usual after dark a second core episode. Yes. So we are we're going to be cored out by the end yes. of the evening. Yeah. We are going to be <laughs> yes. cored. Yes. Uh who yeah. are we covering? So uh, in this free episode, if you've clicked on the link and you're listening to this, we are covering the American visionary artist James. Hampton. And in the After Dark for Patreon members only, we are going to be doing a Art of Darkness episode on the great American writer Dennis Johnson. Okay, and I, I want to be clear. I heard to a little everyone. applause out there in the digital 
spear somewhere. Dennis Johnson. Yeah, I want to yeah. be clear that Brad has has sprung this on me. I was yeah. not aware that we were going to be doing this. He's yeah. he's grown. He has a mind of his own. Brad Kelly <laughs> no. does. Oh, and no. uh, but I'm very excited. So yeah, I'm going to be good. I'm, mm-hmm, I learned about this today, too. So it's like, wow, not only do I get to to ride shotgun for James Hampton, then we're going to take a little break. And then I get to ride shotgun for Dennis Johnson, who's one of the greatest American writers who's who ever, who's ever lived. Tree of Smoke is it's one of maybe the greatest Vietnam novel. One I, of the, I've, I've read most of the Vietnam novels and it's it is. I think I, I think there's an argument for it being the best of them. So for sure. Wow. Um, and and, and right. part of the reason we're going to do this is because our, our primary subject here on the free portion, James Hampton, not a lot is known about him as a as a person. And so that this episode is going to be a little shorter than our normal four or five hour. Um, and I thought I want to give I want to give the audience something. We've our Patreon is growing. I want to give the Patreon people something really special to you know kind of show how much we appreciate their support. And we're gonna find out there's actually a connection to, between these two that is tenuous but real. And uh, so yeah. it made perfect. It's, it's sense just like uh, you and I. Yeah. <laughs> similar yeah, similar vibe. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So so page, so so if you're listening to this <laughs> when we write the book, when we write the book, tenuous, tenuous but, real. but real, the art of darkness story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. So, um, so yeah. So, if you want to get that Dennis Johnson episode, patreoncom slash Art of Dark Pod. Um, subscribe there for five dollars a month. You'll also get access to After Dark episodes, 20, 30, 40 minute uh, uh, bonus content for every episode that we do, and that includes the Dark Room uh, interview uh, conversation episode. So, um, I guess we'll launch right into it. Kevin, what do you know about James Hampton? Next to nothing. I think the only reason I know anything is because you've been prepping the episode. Mm. And I think he's a sculptor, American sculptor. Yeah. A- African-American okay. sculptor mm-hmm. who was uh, an outsider. See, and you yeah. you on the, the Twitter or the X at mm-hmm. Art of Dark Pod, uh, you do a really good job of curating that account, Brad. And, yes, you, you know, you've got a lot of interesting stuff there. So I do. And as we're as we get. uh in the run-up to a core episode, you like to post germane, uh, I guess, posts and, and images yeah. and links and things about not necessarily the artist himself or herself, although you do that, but you you mm-hmm. kind of go far afield. You go to the their contemporaries and other artists like them. So I yeah. picked up bits and bobs that were talking kind of about an outsider artist here, mm-hmm. but I couldn't even tell you what what years he was active oh. or anything. So awesome. Awesome. Okay, good. All right, great. So as we get into this, Kevin, I dropped a uh, a link in the chat and I think you're going to want to have that open for a little while um, and just okay. see what see what we're working with there. I'm going to ask for, you in a minute. Go ahead. And for the audience, I will put this link. I will put this image at artofdarkpod.com along with this episode and the show notes so okay, you can cool. you'll be able to find it there mm-hmm. yeah and if you listen on youtube uh, there's going to be a couple other images that i'm going to just to sort of reference a couple artists i'm also going to reference um just in 
in an attempt to further understand James Hampton. And if you subscribe on you're subscribed and you're listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube, you'll see images from those artists as well. There's just a handful of them. And uh, talking about them is, I think, going to help us understand what James Hampton was up to. So um, so we'll get there when we get there. Um, OK, so James Hampton. Uh, <clears throat> everything you said was correct. Um, he's born in 1909. He was a low paid janitor for the General Services Administration in Washington, D.C., and he was the creator of a visionary sculptural installation he titled the, quote, Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. He built this in a storage garage or a stable, according to some sources, just a 20-minute walk from the White House at uh, 1133 7th Street Northwest. There is now a Subway sandwich shop in that location. <laughs> uh, God okay. bless America, right? You know, you know, Subway. If I'm not mistaken, is the most uh, prolific fast food chain, and it makes sense when you mm-hmm. uh, when you think about it, because I imagine their insurance is less. They don't have fryers. There's a lot of other factors that go into that. So yeah, yeah. just a Subway everywhere, and that's the GDP, and the line goes up. And yeah, we have nothing yeah. and nothing from history will carry forward. <laughs> All restaurants are now Subway. Yeah. <laughs> it's a paperclip. It's a yeah. paperclip thing, but it's uh, Subways. I have been working in some very remote rural areas at various times in my day job life. And Subway is the most reliable thing you can get in this country. Yeah. This podcast is a Subway Respector podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. it's if it's yeah, that it's, or starve, then yep, you get it's Subway. a freaking it's a freaking sandwich. Yeah. So, Kevin, I don't necessarily want you to describe this piece of art. Uh, you can if you want, but t- talk a little bit about just your impressions on seeing it. Well, it seems it's it's gilded. It seems mm-hmm. baroque. Uh, mm-hmm. There seems to be implied almost kind of like a like an angelic motif. There are numerous pieces that are that almost look like ornate tables, but they're clearly not. They don't have any any utility. There are also these kind of ornaments hanging on the wall that are reminiscent of icons that you might see in the Orthodox Church or or in the Catholic Church, the one true faith. And there's a there's a quality of almost sort of ceremonial there's like a like there's a there's a vibration of like you, you come kind of almost like ancient babylonian uh ornateness yeah, yeah that's what i see yeah um, it yeah, reminds I, me of some of the some of the churches in uh, mexico that i was privileged to visit where there's yeah. just this, there's like gold and, and gilded metal just falling, just mm-hmm. rolling off itself. I mean, it's just incredible. Right. And, and yeah. so many details, you kind of can't even key in on any one thing in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's great. Let me give you, uh, for people who, you know, who are just listening to this, if you're just listening to this driving, and you've never seen this piece of art. Let me give you a description riven, uh, written by. Uh, Stephen J. Gould. And if that name rings a bell for you as the audience, uh, it should. And we'll talk more about him later. He wrote a very long piece about 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 the throne. We're just going to refer to it as the throne. I'm not going to repeat this this long title uh, over and over. We'll refer to it as the throne. Um, So this is from Stephen J. Gould's article, James Hampton's Throne and the Dual Nature of Time. 
Hampton's throne contains 180 separate pieces arranged on two tiers and symmetrically uh, disposed about the central structure, presumably a throne for Christ's second coming. Hampton fashioned his pieces with consummate ingenuity and patience from bits and fragments of used or discarded objects. Most of the larger pieces are built upon a base of old furniture. The central throne is an armchair with red, uh, faded red cloth cushions. Two semicircular offertories are built from a large round table sawed in half. Merchants in a used furniture district near Hampton's garage recalled that he often browsed among their wares and then returned with a child's wagon to haul away his treasures. But other pieces have no such substantial foundation. Some are built up from layers of insulation board, others from hollow cardboard cylinders that had supported rolls of carpeting. Around these foundations, Hampton wrapped, nailed, glued, and otherwise affixed his glittering ornaments. He, uh, he scavenged the neighborhood for gold and aluminum foil collected from store displays, cigarette boxes, and kitchen rolls. He even paid neighborhood vagrants for the foil on their wine bottles and carried a sack wherever he went to hold any bits and pieces found on the streets. He also gathered light bulbs, desk blotters, sheets of plastic, insulation board, and craft paper, all from the tr uh, all apparently from the trash bins of government buildings where he worked. Hampton used these materials to fashion his elaborate ornaments. Foil wrapped around light bulbs and jelly jars are the main decoration of most of his structures, but he used craft paper and cardboard as well to make wings and stars, also lined or covered with foil, and he built rows of knobs from balls of crumpled foil or newspaper surrounded by foil and lined the edges of several tables with thin tubes of electrical cable covered with gold foil. Okay. Um, it's a, it's, it's. There's a there's a strange thing when you glance at it. At, you're not there in person. You can't look up at it close. It has a a majestic quality. It's gold and silver, and then you realize as you look at it closer that it's made out of discard. It's yeah, a lot of it's trash, right? That's remark remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. Now, one note we'll make here. There's a um, uh, an academic named uh, Dr. Maud Southwell Walham. She says she ha she said this quote: "I am familiar with James Hampton's work, but do not consider him an outsider artist, as he continued graveyard art traditions from his home in Ellery, South Carolina, where light bulbs and tinfoil decorations were put on graves. He put that art tradition in a new context in D.C. So there's some kind of uh, artistic or or artisan." tradition here that we're the most people probably aren't aware of i certainly wasn't aware of um and we'll talk more we'll talk a little bit more about that um, so instead of calling him an outsider we would maybe say he's a folk artist working think, in a yes hmm. yeah i think hmm. that's i think that's fair we're going to talk a little bit about the the changing the sort of um academic um thought on outsider art um and psychiatric art and what they call quote unquote naive art um hmm. naive not as derogatory but just you know right. naive in that you never went to art school <laughs> you never went to a manhattan cocktail party um <laughs> <laughs> you are blessed you are blessed beyond belief beyond imagining <laughs> right. right you are so, free 
Yeah. You don't, so you don't think about, you've never <laughs> thought about status in your life. Yeah. That's nice. Not really. That's, not really. Not really. Yeah. Not. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about how James Hampton fits into the conventions and thinking in those, in those areas. But I think you're right. I mean, he didn't think of himself as an outsider artist, right? He, he thought of himself as a man on a mission um, and continuing what he had seen. What he had seen was this, these, these, um, this grave deck graveyard art tradition um hmm. so there's another part of this that is uh uh there's a textual element to this as well um we're going to talk about that more later um and he it's it's also very interesting there's basically a book that goes along with the throne that is what bizarre wow <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about that um the <clears throat> Now, why are we talking about this in general? First of all, I just think this is a quite a biz- uh, I I, I kind of love the piece of work. Like I I would it's 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 striking. It's feels very it feels unique. Um mm-hmm. and the fellow is so mysterious. He's not a person who is trying to have an artistic career. He he I don't think he would have even considered himself an artist in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but clearly this is a creative passion on the level of anybody. And we'll see, we'll, we'll see that that is very much true. Um, uh, one thing I just want to know before we get into more about him, James Hampton, the man, the renowned art critic, Robert Hughes said about the throne <clears throat> quote, this may well be the finest work of visionary religious art produced by an American. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is gnarly. I am into this. Very right. cool. Right. Mm. So, okay. So who is this guy? James Hampton. As we said, born April 8th, 1909, tiny town of Ellery, South Carolina. We know very little about him. And oftentimes in an Art of Darkness core episode, it, it, you know, if this is the first one you've listened to, <clears throat> usually we try to paint you. We try to talk about the work a lot. We try to tell the story of the person, but we also try to convey to you something about what they were like. We're not going to be able to do a very good job of that with James Hampton, to be honest. There's just not that much known about him. He didn't do interviews, right? He wasn't on a podcast. (laughs) There hasn't been a 500 page biography written about him. Um, I was trying to find. Well, we'll get to I tried to track down his military records and didn't have much luck. So um, so we'll we'll get to that. Um, Right, you're becoming a, a PI here. You're yeah. leveling up. You're up leveling your skills. <laughs> I'm trying to yeah. slap this stuff on a resume one day. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, so what we do know about him is generally uh, confined to information that was um, uncovered by this woman, Linda Roscoe Hardigan. She's an assistant curator. Um, and I think she was an intern when she did this research. Um uh, she's a she's an assistant curator for the National Museum of American Art, which is now the Smithsonian American Art Museum. That's where the throne is on display. It's on, been on display there since 1970. They eventually constructed an alcove specifically for this throne to sit in because to the curator and, and the, the museum organizers, it seemed like that was the most appropriate way to display it. Um, James was uh, James Hampton was born into a family with three brothers and sisters. Um, his father, excuse me, James Hampton uh, Sr., 
abandoned the family at some point to follow his itinerant calling as a preacher and gospel singer. Ah. Though, also according to the Washington Post uh, article of 1981, uh, James Sr. also pursued a life of crime and worked on chain gangs. I was going to say, that's quite a thing to abandon your family to go do. I'm going to abandon my family to go preach the gospel. the word, right? Yikes. I mean, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's Buddha. I I mean, it's not like there's no precedent for it, but yeah. But but yeah, I think it is. It is automatically like, are you really? Should you be out there (laughs) preaching the word? Exactly. Um, uh, Though, you know. Maybe it was his calling. James Hampton, Mm. his son, certainly had a calling. Um, The next landmark in Hampton's life uh, is at the age of 19. So this would be 1928 or 1929. He moved north from Ellery, South Carolina, to join his brother and his brother's wife, who were living in Washington, D.C. When he eventually applied to be a government employee, he stated that he had a 10th grade education from an elite black high school. this appears based on the research of Roscoe, uh, Linda Roscoe Hardigan to have been a falsification. The dude probably lied on his resume. Hey, you got to you got to fake it till you make it. There's a lot yeah, of people exactly. lying on their resumes right now today. I have That's heard. Right. That's right. That's I, right. I would never. However, I would never. <laughs> I, you're not going to catch me writing a resume. Hello, sir. <laughs> I would like a, a job. Uh, please. I have a podcast. <laughs> you <laughs> Just, might like it. I end up on the street. <laughs> Why didn't they like me? this accounting firm? Didn't care for my podcast. Apparently, this is this is. Hey, Ben, come in here, Ben. This is the worst <laughs> cover letter I've ever read. Yeah, did there's you click a the QR, link? There's yeah. a QR code on it. What is this? This guy's nuts. <laughs> That's a good, that actually might be some good guerrilla marketing. You just apply to tons of jobs, but you just. Um, Imagine the hate we would get. Oh my God. It's not, it's not, it's not a crime. You can apply to any job you want. It's not a crime. Just start shotgun promoting Art of Darkness on LinkedIn. Oh, we have fun. Okay, so from 1939 to 1942, James Hampton was a short order cook in local cafes. Uh, eventually, he was inducted into the 385th Aviation Squadron. Talking World War II, of course. This was a non uh, non uh, non combat regiment that saw James Hampton in Texas, Seattle, Hawaii, Saipan, and Guam. Oh um, boy. I did try. That apparently, his records were lost in a fire or something. There's really no, there's very scant military records on this guy. Um, it's, uh, Hardigan says that from her research, it appears he was doing his, his, he, he was doing carpentry and airstrip maintenance. So we're not talking about a combat. He didn't have combat experience. Um, but there at the same time, while he was in, while he was, uh, in the military, there was a fairly significant battle in Guam in the summer of 1944. People, World War II buffs probably know about this. Um, in this battle, more than 2,000 uh, U.S. personnel, uh, Marines, soldiers, and Navy men lost their lives. And ja- the Japanese fared far worse. They lost apparently nearly 20,000 um people uh soldiers in the in the battle of guam so i'm not sure if he was on guam at the time he very well could have been um uh but what we do know is that hampton was there about uh eight months after the battle at least if he wasn't there for the battle 
Um, cause he, it seems that here he may have created his first piece of art or at least the first piece of art that we know about. Um, this is a small sculpture that he did bring back to the United States and he had in his garage. Um, it was labeled made on Guam, April 14th, 1945. So 1945, go ahead. Hang on. I'm looking at Guam on the map and it is about as far away from anything as you as you can get as a little island and i don't know if you have any listeners in guam if you're ever listening to this in guam we'd love to hear from you uh art of dark pot at gmail.com i'm quite serious i'm just thinking about like like psychologically what it must be like to live in a place like that uh right. i must be so curious this this little island in just smack dab in the middle of the pacific very curious i'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm gonna do some reading about guam and the battle of guam later that's the kind of guy i am i'm very curious <laughs> anyway i like, anyway. It. I like yeah. it hmm yeah so 1945 hampton earns his honorable discharge um and from the outside if you don't know about his project this is what his life looks like from 1945 until his death in 1964. He is a janitor for the general services administration. That's it. Doesn't get married. Doesn't have kids. Doesn't have a different job. Doesn't try to start a business. Doesn't he literally there. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> as far he mops. As we know. He, he mops. mops. Yeah. Good right. hunting. Yes, he gets yeah. off his shift at midnight, and what he was doing is quietly, uh, rarely getting in- intimate with anyone. He would get off his shift, and he would work for five or six hours on the throne wow. every day. Got to gotta have a project, people. <laughs> yes. yes. Got to have yes. a passion. Yeah. So now, a little bit about him. Small guy, wore glasses. Um He's surviving family doesn't really talk, wouldn't really talk about him. There's a couple of articles really trying to sort of figure out who James Hampton was. The family isn't interested in talking about him. I think they thought he was too far out there for them. Um, uh, his brother died in kind of mysterious circumstances in 1949 in Washington, D.C. Um, one person who knew did know him a little bit was a woman that he shared a carpool with. Uh, she said that he was, quote, diligent, religious, reserved, and humble, and that uh, he believed that one was rewarded in heaven for what one accomplished on earth. Um, yeah. Sometime in uh, the... Go, yeah. 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 Co-sign that. I think that's, that's about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometime in the early 1960s, he became ill with stomach cancer. And on November 4th, 1964, James Hampton passed away from stomach cancer. We're not done, but that is the story of the life. We're done with the life of James Hampton part. I mean, wow, that was that's that was all there fast. is to say. That's great. <laughs> I'm gonna have time to go rewatch right. The Killer on Netflix. Right, right. I've got the yeah. night's over. Okay, this has been a great episode of Art of Darkness. Thank you, Brad, for your diligent research. Right. Uh, the yeah. fastest Art of Darkness episode. This is even faster than our first uh, our Burroughs episode. That's right. When we right. when we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And trust me, I tried to find out more about him. There isn't anything more about him. Like somebody out there knows more about him, but I couldn't get that information. No man, no, no Google foo could could come up with it. Google Um, foo. Listen, and if you, I don't know, we're at art of dark pod. Oh yeah. If you have like personal anecdotes for some reason, that'd be amazing. 
yeah, we're yeah. we are uh, open for business. Open for business. We are yeah. curious guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so now we're going to talk a little bit more about the work itself, the history of the work, kind of what happened to it, uh, what thoughts are on it. I've got a lot more stuff to talk about, but in terms of the life of James Hampton, that part of the show, kind of over, frankly. Um, okay. So first it's, of all, I, I'm going to tell you yeah. something. It's kind of a relief. <laughs> It's a different, uh, it's a different episode. Uh, hey, I'm, we got to try different stuff. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Like I'm preparing my, my Shelley episode, my Mary mm-hmm. Shelley episode. And there, there, I don't even know how many biographies there, there have been written about, about mm-hmm. her. And it's just, they have, they have the light, these lives down to like the day in many right. cases, because of so many letters and so many, just in London in the 19th century and, and just different, it's just a different thing. It's just, it's kind of a relief to, there are quiet lives that are yeah. artistically successful and mm-hmm. presumably fulfilling and which leave a legacy behind. Right. Uh, boy, I wonder what, this is a little tangential, but it's going to be really curious what historians are up against 200 years from years from now. Yeah. When you think about the the technology and what it's going to, what it's going to look like and what it's going to feel like, I, it's a future problem. Enjoy. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, it, there's yeah. biographers mm-hmm. working now who are like really trying to get the internet data from the, 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 the widow. 1994. Of- Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. She yeah. said Emails she had his. She said and... she had his laptop, but she couldn't access it. And so you know, like, there's going right. to be all kinds of stories. Uh, all kinds gonna of be, things like that. Yeah. I mean, the historiography, yep. the practice of history is going to mm-hmm. be radically altered. I'm sure somebody yep. is already working on PhD. You know, PhD oh, level yeah. thinking about what it's going to look like. Uh, anyway, yeah. we're a couple of nerds. Thank you for yeah. listening, Guard yeah. of Darkness. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, this is going to be fun. Okay, uh, Brad, I'm yeah. ready for. I guess part, almost like part two of this episode. Kind He's of. Already, yeah. You've already walked through his life he's died of stomach cancer and and now yeah. we're going to talk about this this magnificent throne we're going to watch the throne brad yeah okay i like that mm-hmm. yes yeah. yeah james hampton watches the throne mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. uh the most so why did he create this the most direct explanation uh, of why james hampton wrote this and it, i love this in his notebooks he referred to him he gave himself this name and title he referred to himself as saint james director of special projects for the state of eternity that's that is it's beautiful man it is right yeah this is the, the most direct explanation of why he did this is he had visions uh his first documented vision was in 1931 when he was 22 years old he wrote quote this is true that the great moses the giver of the 10th commandment appeared in washington dc april 11th 1931 he would be visited regularly not in dreams, but as he said, in physical form. He was spoken to directly by a number of figures, including Moses, uh, the Virgin Mary, and Adam, uh, and Jesus. Um, <clears throat> now, this particular his particular strand of Christianity, I think, does require some discussion here um, because it's indicative of the kind of, I think it's, you know, well before we did we did our first Art of Darkness episode, Kevin, we did an episode of Get This on Harold Bloom. I'm sure you remember that. I do and remember with uh, Michael Backinson, friend, that's of, right. friend that's, of the pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And we talked about Harold Bloom has this notion that there's this kind of peculiar American Gnostic religion, right? That that 
takes many forms, but we're all in some ways participating in it. Whatever you think of that thesis, I think James Hampton is like one of the um, in James Hampton and his set of beliefs is like one of the stakes you can put in this sort of laying out this tapestry of the American religious landscape. I use like three different metaphors there, but you get what I mean. Um, James Hampton was raised a Baptist. Um, and yet at least one of his visions corresponded to a pronouncement by the Pope. He had this to say, quote, based, uh, based. This was his last dated vision. Quote, this design is proof of the Virgin Mary descending into heaven. November 2nd, 1950. It is also spoken by Pope Pius XII. That is the date that the Pope had proclaimed uh, the assumption of the Virgin as church dogma. Um, people who don't know what that means. This is the Catholic dogma, dogma that Mary was taken bodily into heaven. Um, James Hampton had a vision on that day. Um, okay. Catholics, Catholics love to make assumptions. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you from yeah, experience. Yeah. Capital A. Um, mm. But a little more to, to to kind of sharpen the pencil a little bit on what James Hampton's religious beliefs were. He would be considered a dispensationalist. Um, okay. So, you know, the, uh, we know this from the, the title of the work that he made, the throne of the, I can't remember it. This is the problem. The throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. Um, we also know this from his notes. Um, what is dispensationalism? I don't know, Kevin, if you know anything about this, feel free to jump in, but um, uh, it sounds like sounds like Protestant heresy to me. No, well, I don't know. Yeah, I really yeah, don't. I, mean, I don't know. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. It's I a know. it's a theological framework that makes very much of the concept uh, a lot out of the concept of dispensations and dispensation. The idea of dispensations is that history is comprised of ages, basically, and these are called dispensations. Um, it's a very literal interpretation of the Bible that puts a great deal of weight on the Book of Revelation. Oh, fun. We're getting yeah. into kind of chick track territory here. Aren't a, we? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and now a fully dispensationalist Christian would believe that Christ will soon make himself manifest and usher in a literal thousand year golden age of peace. Now, there are disputes about, you know, there's different sorts of dispensationalists, right? As in any sort of schism there's going to be that thing will will keep breaking itself down until it's just a bunch of people individual it, it, people until sets, you right? until you end up at a strip mall next to the subway right right yeah there you go there you go now um yeah <laughs> you can read the book of revelation and have yeah. a tasty sandwich well hey it's, 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 it's the american you know. it's the american dream that's right that's right um, now, most schools of thought within dispensation, Christian dispensationalism have this in common. They believe that there will be a tribulation. They believe mm -hmm. there will be a rapture. And um, all of them have this notion of the millennium and the second coming. We need to expand a little bit here on the concept of the millennium because it doesn't strictly mean the year 2000, right? It is, um, it's the idea of the millennium is the, uh, of the millennium in dispensationalism is that there will be a golden age will occur. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So um, That's, that sounds nice. We could use a golden age. Sure, We could. Mm. Um, and the concept exists. It's not just in Christianity, this notion of golden age, when people are talking about uh, when you hear people described as uh, millenarians, um, right. This is right. what they think is that there is a coming sort of almost predestined, 
period golden age and that before it will be something it will be chaotic there will be something the, the cali the cali yuga right yeah living through right 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 right, right. so i'm a geri- geriatric millenarian yeah <laughs> i'm getting confused right <laughs> right now uh in Christianity, so so this notion, this this general millenarianism shows up in all kinds of religions. I mean, it's oh, in Christianity, yeah. of course, it's in Judaism, it's in Zoroastrianism. The Jehovah's Witnesses are sort of are sort of millenarian. Uh, there's strands of Baha'i that are mil- it's not mm. exclusive to Christianity. It's almost like a well, there's a for a religion to properly be a religion, there needs to be. Uh, an eschatology. There needs to be an right. idea of the end of the world. You can't have a cosmology without the bookend on the other side. Right. And speaking of bookends, uh, for Patreon, we're getting ready. That's the name of our our book club. We're getting ready to do Blood Meridian with Aaron Gwynn on December 3rd. Yeah. So if you are uh, on Patreon and you are reading Blood Meridian, good for you. Speaking of the American Gnostic yeah, uh, psychological topography. Uh, that's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to that. December third, the details will be posted on on the yes. uh, Patreon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, in Christianity, millionaire, and that's a nice segue, by the way. Oh uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I say the word bookends, and I think about our book club. But it yeah. is true. I mean, a religion really you need an eschatology. If you're going to start a yeah. cult, you kind of. I mean, it kind of has to be there. Uh, yeah. For whatever reason, I mean, it's. I, I think psychologically, it has something to do with the fact that our lives are kind of. We emerge seemingly out of the void, and we seemingly go back to the void. And humans have a tendency to extrapolate outward from from our our own experience to try to make sense of the universe. And it seems like the beginning and the end have to be accounted for if you're going to have a cosmology, right. which encompasses the the totality of of the universe you're gonna have to explain the ending yeah yeah no i think that's i think that's i think that's very well put and and um well i've thought about the end of the world a lot brad i came of age uh, in the year 2000 they kind of they kind of did a number on us didn't they yeah yeah uh the millenarian generation for sure um Mm. now I want to just give you that because I think this is good. I think this is good to have. So, like I said, the dispensationalists, Christian dispensationalists, make much of the Book of Revelation, and there are two passages in particular. Remember, we said there it's a it's a school of thought is that is is very much literalist, and there are two passages in the Book of Revelation that um, are relied upon in in dispensationalist thinking. And I thought, why not? We've never read any book of Revelation on the... Uh, All right, here we go. Why not? Let's go. Okay. Here's, here's Revelation <laughs> chapter 20, verses 2 through 3. Quote, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Kind of, sounds, it sounds like the telegram chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another t, one. T, uh, T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. We have yeah. fun in there. Yeah. Now, here's another one. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse uh, 4 through 6. Um, came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Now, 
there's again, I, I mentioned the the this notion that millenarianism and sort of a version of dispensationalism shows up in all kinds of religious and uh, ideological frameworks, Christianity, Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Baha'i. I mean, there's a way you can even think of like the um, the Nazi regime was millenarian, right? Absolutely. The they were the talking third, about the, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The yeah. third Reich was the age of the Holy spirit, a coming golden age that they were trying to usher in. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a urge that shows up constantly in all kinds of different systems of thought um the in the thousand 20- year the thousand year e-girl reich on on twitter <laughs> will never end it's it just gonna be, it can't yum, even yum. be nuked out of existence yeah <laughs> gang gang yeah <laughs> <laughs> the tiktok reich yeah. yeah no oh, man this this dystopia sucks <laughs> I did think it was going to be a lot more fun, the dystopia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought the music would be better. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not great. What What was John the Revelator on, man? That's some, right. that's some stuff, man. That's man. Yeah, heavy. Mm. It is. It I, is. I, I've read that a lot of the Book of Revelations was kind of code for uh, politics at the time and had something to do with Rome. And they were he was sort of writing in this cryptic way that it may not actually be um, – you know, a, a prediction of, you know, the, the, the distant future, but that is actually sort of code about the present. And I don't I've know. Heard I'm that. Sure I've, yeah. I've heard that. I've heard also that it's like encoded, like agricultural practices. I've heard that it's, uh, there's a lot of astrological stuff. And like, I don't understand. I don't pretend to understand, have any unique insights it, into the book. It is Revelation. certainly the most metal book of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe I, I may, it's that and Job, but Job is pretty yeah. metal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think even the Pope yeah. would co-sign that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just dogma that the Book of Revelation yeah. is the, uh, the most metal, the, the most the metal book of the of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> suddenly, uh, all everybody's on side with this Pope now. Right, <laughs> all the politics is solved. Pope declares the Book yeah. of Revelation right. to be the most metal, and it's just yeah. uh, it's a unifying. Yeah. He's right. Um, He's right. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, the assumption of Mary is is a holy day of obligation as well. Mm-hmm. If you're practicing Catholic, you have to attend mass on I think it's August fifteenth. Mm. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no, serious to, serious business. We used to do all those when I was a child. Yeah. Mm. Now, millennialist uh, dispensationalist thinking, Christian dispensationalism in the twentieth century was brought to the fore. I mean, it, it hasn't always been there, and it's sort of it, it, this thing. This stuff still is exists right um it was brought into the fore in the 20th century with a book uh, a, a publication called the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909 basically this was a King James Bible with commentary printed alongside of it something that had not been done since the Geneva Bible of Bible of 1560 the Schofield Reference Bible uh, included a cross-referencing system that aided one in following biblical themes throughout the book and in a 1917 version, it actually tried to date events in the Bible. So this effort, when applied to the book of Revelation, created a major source for the various timetables used by a variety of dis- dispensationalist writers right up to today with that Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, right? You're yeah, familiar. this is a, a dominant strain of Christianity, and it has a lot to do with 
we're not we're not a political show, but it has a yeah. lot to do with current events and mm-hmm. uh, American Zionism and mm-hmm. Christian Zionism and mm-hmm. what they believe uh, the the end of days is going to look like. And yeah. they were the they're sort of the original accelerationists. They're yeah. they're that's, ready. That's interesting. They that's are interesting. ready yeah. to rock. And uh, it's it's some heavy heavy stuff. Growing up as as I did Catholic, uh, you know, like you, Brad, it's uh, it's it's sort of alien, but we're the yeah. aliens to them, right? And right. Uh, you know, Which, I remember what, mm, what yeah. was funny being a Catholic, being raised Catholic, and knowing about that world is a lot of times people who um, didn't quite understand the 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 variation in Christianity sort of would think that. As a Catholic, you were on board with this stuff. I don't know if you, you ever, you know, yeah, like, right. yeah, no, man. No, 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 we're just really fixated on donuts and the, the liturgical <laughs> right. calendar, and right? Right, the right. sacraments. You guys, and you guys, we, think we came from apes. We're like, no, actually, we don't. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, we do. Sorry, like, you yeah, guys yeah, think yeah. we're, you know, you don't believe in evolution. We're like, no, we actually, it's we actually complicated. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so anyway, anyway. Point being, this is with a school kind of James Hampton's coming out. Now, let's talk a little bit more about fascinating. Thank you for covering that. I didn't realize that was what like dispensationalism. That's a word you hear, but I hadn't put the the two things together. So yeah, I mean, I think the 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 better the word that I think is more meaningful to people at first sort of blush is millenarianism. Millenarianism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now back on the work. On the top of the, you can't really see it in the picture I sent you. Yep. Uh, he he inscribed the words "fear not." These were the key, and he had a couple other labels James Hampton did on the throne, but that was the big one: "fear not." And I wanted to thinking about the fact that he's a dispensationalist, so the Book of Revelation is really important to him. I wanted to read the 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 couple of verses, or I don't know, half a dozen verses of the Book of Revelation that include the words fear not and this is probably what he was intending <clears throat> this is from the book of revelation quote then i turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned i saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Okay. Now, the phrase fear not shows up elsewhere in the Bible. It's not just there. It shows up a ton in uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, and I'll just give you one quote. There's a handful of, it shows up a few times in the book of Isaiah, but I'll give you this one. <clears throat> well, this is, uh, chapter 41, book, uh, verse 10, fear not for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Uh, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay. So this was some of the stuff that was going on in James Hampton's head, right? Dispensation was in the book of Revelation, right? Yeah. Just mopping, thinking about yeah. the book of Revelation. Right. Mopping. Right. right. Mm. Getting out at midnight, you know, the White House. What, what I find really, one thing I find really interesting about this is it's like, weirdly close to like the white house it's yeah just, there's something go, about that mm, that i can't quite articulate it's a, but yeah it's an interesting thing about dc is that there's a lot of people just living right there while all that stuff is happening i mean mm -hmm. that's a company town mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of people to run that yeah. city yeah. and uh yeah mm. yeah now um talking about sort of James Hampton's daily religious practice or whatever, his daily religious uh, experience. According to Linda Hardigan, he was not a member of any congregation because he actually believed there was, you know, he had, he believed that there were different denominations, religions were unnecessary. Um, he, in his head, he was sort of like, he, it was sort of like Christ is coming any second and you guys are bickering about like fine details about this and that like what are you you know what are you doing you, you're not building the throne what's wrong with you that I, I think that's kind of the attitude um listen I respect the commitment to the bit yeah <laughs> if yeah. you're if you're in <laughs> yeah it, like do it yeah 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 now nonetheless Hardigan suggests that Hampton at some point had gone to a church nearby, the Mount Airy Baptist Church. It's still there. They still have services. Um, uh, this was a place that was near his, the boarding house that he lived in. At one point, this church was presided over by a very popular black minister named A.J. Uh, Tyler. Among other things, Tyler, who died in 1936, established a monument to Jesus. Tyler believed that D.C., Washington, D.C., he said, was the city of monuments but there's no monument to Jesus. What's what's wrong with this picture? Um, really makes you really makes the noggin jog. Makes you think. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. So Tyler had erected an electric sign that read "Monument to Jesus" installed over the door to the church, which is a very kind of. I understand his attention, but it's a very kind of pomo move. It's like, I, yeah, it sounds like something monument you, you'd go to see, Jesus here. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like post. Yeah, like you'd go to the Tate Modern or to the MoMA, and that's what right. you'd see. Yeah, it's yeah. like going to the Tate Modern, and you walk into a room, and there's a picture that just says art, and you're like, huh, right. yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm. Yes, mm. yeah, and then you can go buy the book down in, right. the, in the gift shop. Right. That also says art on it. Just yeah. every a coffee table book. All it says is art. Every single page. <laughs> Genius. Right. Give that. Give that fucker. A MacArthur eye. Grant. MacArthur yeah, Grant. Yeah, now. Yeah. yeah now. <laughs> Different fonts. Just the yeah. word art over and over. Art. Art. Yeah. Art. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Comic Sans. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Papyrus. Odd, oh, no. Take take the Guggenheim away. <laughs> this guy's a freaking hack. <laughs> uh, so now Hampton was apparently very much inspired by this idea of a monument to Jesus. And he would sometimes refer to his own work, the throne, as a monument. And I think he probably the thinking is he took this directly from this A.J. Tyler uh, fella. Um, he also sometimes labeled some of the pieces the Tyler Baptist Church after this 
after this uh, minister. Um, in his notebooks, Hampton sometimes refers to himself, in fact, as St. James, the pastor of the Tyler Baptist Church. So there is this sense that he was sort of <clears throat> very much inspired by this Tyler guy. But now Tyler died in 1936 and he's working on the throne well, you know, for the next uh, 20 some years. So this is very much like a, uh, you know, it's not like Tyler was around and they were in any way working together or he's hearing sermons or anything like that. Um, uh, now, despite the fact that Hardigan claimed that Hampton sort of didn't discriminate based on denomination, <clears throat> there was Hampton did express to a woman that he worked with that he planned to be a minister when he retired from being a janitor at the General Services Administration. He didn't la live long enough for that to happen. I mean, he was 55 when he died. Um, Another woman that he knew that James Hampton knew said that he had approached several local churches about either taking the throne into their building or using it as a teaching model of some kind, um, though nothing of this materialized. Ditto for his attempt to get the Washington Post or some other local paper interested in the work. So for a while, he was trying to kind of popularize it. And then I think at some point, he's just like, nobody gets it. People don't understand what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. I, I can see this. It's like, look, it's this throne that I've made out of waste and detritus. Right. And yeah. yeah, like, and who are you? You're right. a what? You're a yeah. What are you? It's, a, it's very, yeah, I can see him struggling to, you know. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy in retrospect now that it's in the Smithsonian Art Museum to be like, oh, people didn't respect what he was doing. But frankly, 1955, this guy opens the door and lets Far you out. in. You might be like, Dude, I don't know. Like, it's cool, I guess. Like, I wouldn't know what to say about it either, you know? Yeah. Um, now, a few... You might try to sit on it. Right, right, right. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah if, if you actually look at that picture I sent you, I believe that's the one that there's also three crowns sitting on the floor. Those were actual oh, yeah. crowns you could put on your head. Incredible. Yeah. There yeah. appear to be more than three. There's there might be, like be more. Seven. Oh, okay. Ooh, Which, of seven. course, would be symbolic, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Very good. Very good. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. Now, uh, some people did see the throne during James Hampton's lifetime. Um, I mentioned the couple women uh, that had seen it. Um, it's probably something like a half a dozen different people. Um, he had spoken a few times and written down in his notebook that he was uh, looking for a holy woman who might assist him with his work and be his wife. I don't think it's unreasonable Aren't for we all. Yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable for a man to be looking for a wife. Um, he just this, like me for real. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. this never happened. As far as we know, he had no intimate relationships, no romantic partners ever. Um, uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit of a little bit of an incel. Right. 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 Um. Here's a quote from the 1981 Washington Post. And, and I want to note, he when he was working on this throne, he tried to get the Washington Post interested in it. 1981, 17 years after his death, the Washington Post writes a big feature length article on it. Right. Uh, um, ain't that always the way? That's how it works a lot of times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Quote, the earliest viewer of Hampton's throne who is still alive in 1981, is a woman named Otilia Whitehead uh, who visited Hampton's workplace during uh, the 1940s. 
Whitehead, a registered nurse and a cosmopolitan woman, suffered this reaction. And this is this is her words. Quote, I was speechless. A cab driver brought me to the alley saying there's something here you really must see. Mr. Hampton opened the door and it was like the wings of Gabriel were beating in the extremely bright light. Mr. Hampton showed me a piece, each piece speaking of the millennium and Armageddon. You may live to see it, he said. You might be here, be here when he comes again. Mr. Hampton was sleeping in that space on a couch with an electric burner for heat. Despite the poorness of the surroundings, I felt the presence of some unknown force. I returned to visit Mr. Hampton a dozen times. No one could sit on the throne, but he would permit you to approach it on your knees. I knelt before the mercy seat, and it was like praying before a great altar. Okay. Now, last year, that'd be 1980, Whitehead, who considers herself psychic, was pronounced clinically dead. She was resuscitated, but in that limbo between life and death, she had a vision of James Hampton. He was standing beside a man who may or may not have been Jesus, and he was motioning her back. Quote, my work was not done, Whitehead said. I've thought and thought about his meaning, but I always come back to the throne. There are mysteries there which have not been solved. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is some real mystic art. Yeah. Yeah. Immediate, direct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm surprised I haven't seen this before. I've been to all of those museums. It's possible that I had passed through. I, I you'd think I would have I'd remember something like this, but maybe yeah. it could get overwhelming those museums. You're you're there, you know, all day. Well, yeah. in any case, yeah. 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 Now, uh uh, Otilia, I th- I'm not sure if her name is Otilia or Ophelia. Ophelia sounds right, but it says Otilia in the anyway. Uh, Miss Whitehead, lucky for us, wasn't the only person who found the throne interesting. When Hampton died of stomach cancer in 1964, um, his sister came up from South Carolina to collect his body. She was not interested in the throne at all. She was like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" You know, it's one thing. It's one thing if your brother who died was a writer. He's got a few notebooks you can put those in a filing cabinet and feel like you did the thing it's another thing when his thing his project takes up an entire garage like what do you do with that it i kind of understand her sentiments like yeah man he assembled a bunch of trash like a bunch of trash i don't know what am i what do you want what do you want me to do um but uh uh Hampton's landlord, the guy who he was renting the garage from, he was renting the garage for $50 a month, which was probably a a lot of money. I mean, it's probably 10x that. I mean, James Hampton was probably driving much of his income just into the rent for the space. Um, uh, His landlord was this guy named Meyer Wortlieb. Uh, He had never seen the work uh, and did not understand it. But as he told a reporter at the Washington Post, and I love this quote, you can't just destroy something a man devoted himself to for 14 years. I, I love that. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't know why he was doing it. But like, you can't just throw something away that a person put that much into. I, some, that, that makes me, gives me goosebumps. Just the fact that this guy had that sentiment. Had that yeah. that that ethic, right? It's it's that important, right? Mm-hmm. I don't understand the thing, but it needs to be preserved, right? Right. It yeah. meant something to him. It meant a hell of a lot to him, right? Um. So he didn't know what to do with it. Wortlieb put the stable up, the, the garage or the stable up for rent, and you know he thought maybe he would try to find a gallery or something to sell the throne to. He didn't really know. He didn't know what to do with it, but he was trying to preserve it. A man named 
excuse me, a man named Ed Kelly answered the ad and he was overwhelmed when he saw this. He's quote, Hampton had a dozen 500 watt bulbs around the ceiling and everything shown, uh, shown. I said shown, shown, everything shown. Uh, Ed Kelly contacted a DC art collector named Alice Denny, who is still alive. Apparently she's a hundred years old. She's still kicking. He's still around. Um, huh? Right yeah, on. Yeah, okay. And we, we got a, we got a Kelly on the scene. You know, yeah. 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 Name. Yeah. Popular, very, uh, sensual surname, a very, uh, Ooh. classy <laughs> surname. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so Alice Denny was similarly oppressed when she saw the throne. She brought down some other people, this guy, Leo Castelli, who is an art dealer and gallery owner, this guy, Ivan Karp, who worked with him. The artist, you know, this, you, you know, this lady, Denny makes incredible waffles. <laughs> she probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she also invited this guy, uh, Robert Rauschenberg. People may know that name. He's a painter and graphic graphic artist who sometimes worked with, you know, junk, basically. Uh, and he saw in Hampton this sort of a kindred spirit. He was like, I, he just like me for real. Right. And Rauschenberg mm-hmm. was like an established, well-respected artist. Um, Alice Denny, this this woman who's still around, who is the D.C. art curator, she wanted to save it. And she had a lot of clout in that community. And I imagine still does. Um She'd been an assistant director uh, uh, of the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, all kinds of other positions over her little hundred years of life. Um, she started bringing all kinds of people down there. Oh, One wow. of the per- oh, so the right people started to. to yeah, see. she yeah, knew yeah. it was something, and she knew other people. Right, she was a good person to, to to have spotted it. You know, it's it. She's probably I imagine her as like a a a, a smaller scale Peggy Guggenheim. Is kind okay. of how I imagine her, not in personality or anything, but just in position, mm. uh, cultural position. Um, one of the people she introduced it to was this guy named Harry Lowe. Um, he said that to open the door to the space was, quote, like opening Tut's tomb. Lowe took the possession of the throne for the measly price of Hampton's back rent. So he just paid the back rent, what what James Hampton owed, you know, while the landlord was keeping the space open. And he took it. Um, he brought the thing to the Smithsonian where it remains just six blocks from where it was built. It didn't move very far. Um, now, here's where I want to talk a little bit about Hampton as a, quote, outsider artist, Hampton as a, quote, naive artist, as maybe even to some people's perspective, what you might consider a psychiatric artist. Um, a lot a of psychiatric have... artists. That's a new phrase, but I feel like I understand it. I can't imagine yeah. why, Yeah, <laughs> uh, but right. I, yeah, I feel like I understand what you mean. Yeah. I'm curious. Let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, outsider art, as you can imagine, it, it's a vast, it's not even really a genre of art because it's more about the person than what the art looks like, right? You can imagine all kinds of different, very different. It's not like when you say, oh, they're an impressionist and there's 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 actual visual similarities between the art. It's, it's much more generalized than that, genre-wise. Um, the idea of an outsider artist is that they're self-taught or supposedly, quote, naive. As we said, we don't mean that derogatorily. Um, The term itself, um, outsider art, was coined as recently as 1972, which I found interesting, by the critic Robert Cardinal in the title of his book. Um, It's basically an English equivalent of the French term art brut, a label created in the 1940s by uh, Jean Dubuffet, 
to describe art created outside of official culture. Okay. Dubuffet's term is actually closer to what uh, we probably want here. It's more art brute than uh, than 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 outsider art because Dubuffet specifically pointed not just to people who didn't go to art school. So it's one thing if like a guy in your neighborhood is a really good painter and never went to art school. That's an outsider artist. Art brute is something different. It's about actual people who are hermits, psychiatric uh, patients, spiritualists of all varieties, people who've been struck by visions, right? Um, it's, it's its own thing, right? Yeah. Um, right, right. It's not like, uh, oh, I've, uh, you know, the children have, uh, are out of the house. I'm going to take up painting and do it in my garage and I right. make and watercolors. You're, you're, and... Watching, you're watching YouTube videos about how to like, like, oh, I that's how <laughs> Monet did it. Yeah, it's not. Right, it's... right. And maybe you break through and you have some success and later sure. they find it. OK, we're talking more like, oh, my God, I'm compelled beyond uh, uh, my ability to resist the need to make the this thing. Yes, you got it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. So um, in, in academic interest in this kind of art goes back to, I mean, probably before this, but we can really pin it to the 1920s. This guy named Dr. Uh, uh, Walter Morgenthaler, uh, his other claim to fame, by the way, is helping to refine and promote the work of a certain uh, Dr. Hermann Rorschach. Uh, uh, Walter Morgenthaler published a book on the Swiss artist uh, Adolf Wolfi entitled quote, a, psych- a psychiatric patient as artist. So this is the psychiatric artist thing I'm talking about. Adolf Wolfi? Adolf Wolfi, yeah. Now, yeah. Adolf means wolf, so we got wolf, wolf Wolfie. Wolf, Wolfie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Sounds like right. it sounds like a, he, like a producer uh, of, of like bad daytime television in the 80s. <laughs> right, Like right, a name right. that would scroll by. Yeah. Oh, I'm Executive thinking of producer, link, but... Wolf, Wolfie. Yeah, but look up look up Adolf Wolfi while I'm talking about this. So the last okay. name is W L W O L F L I. Wolf Lee? Wolf Lee. Oh, Wolf yeah. Lee. This is a tricky one. Wolf Lee. He's he's Swiss, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so just that is at, a very Swiss name. Yeah, so just look at some of that art while we're talking about it. Um so so um Morgenthaler writes this book about Wolfi. Um, Wolfi creates these very dense, intricate kind of design-like pieces. They fill to the edge of all the pages. Um, and there's this sort of autobiographical element to them if you know how to look at them. Um, and there's also like musical notes. Wolfi, Wolfi had his own like kind of musical notation um and he had he made paper flutes to play this kind of music very very interesting guy very much like the definition of art brute right like no schooling whatsoever completely doing his own thing no apparent influences like you know very much out on his own limb and swiss and swiss (laughs) <laughs> you ever been to Switzerland, Brad? I have not. No, no. I'd love to. Beautiful yeah. country. Wonderful sure. country. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Unique, unique in the world. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, the work of Wolfli and Morgenthaler led to the first formal study of, quote, psychiatric work or psychiatric art uh, by this guy who is an art historian and uh, psychiatrist named Hans Prinzhor. He wrote in 1922 a book, Artist, Artistry of the Mentally Ill, and this drew the attention of not only the psychiatric community, but established artists like Max Ernst, uh, Ernst 
and Paul Klee. Okay. Well, I mean, now, this this will be ahead. a subject to cover. Vishli would would be uh, great. I'm reading about yeah. him, and it says he was a, he was born in Ban. Uh, mm-hmm. He was abused physically yeah. and sexually. He was orphaned when he was ten. He was raised a, as a foster uh, child. He worked yeah. uh, as a verdingbub or indentured child laborer. Oof. I mean, this is some heavy, yeah. heavy stuff. Psychosis, hallucinations. Okay, I think I understand what you mean by psychiatric art. Yes, and then he yes. Goes on and produces this material. Mm. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, uh, and again, I'm not saying James Hampton is. Um, mentally ill. That's not what I'm trying to propose here. What I'm trying to suggest is that it's this is a kind of artistic output and generativity that I don't think we've covered in any of our other subjects so far in our Art of Darkness. Um, not that I can think of immediately. There's something else going on here than that. I'm going to sit down and make a piece of art and possibly people that I know or a larger audience will appreciate this art that I am making. There's something mm. else going on here. A compulsion, as you said, of some kind or another. That's, and, like, a, and, that's like a lot of podcasters. Man. Yeah. And, and it's not <laughs> like, that, it's I just, not that I just got a podcast. Right. right, I, right. I mean, five people are going to listen to it, but I just got to keep talking. I just right, got to keep right. doing my pod. Right. right. <laughs> I've been that guy in the past. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and this isn't to say that somebody like, uh, uh, you know, who'd we cover last Edgar Allan Poe, that he didn't have a compulsion too, but, but the, I, I hope that you can see a difference between somebody like Wolfley or James Hampton and somebody like Ernest right. Hemingway. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. Wait, like there's no conception of a career here or no. like anything beyond maybe I'd like to try to get it seen by people. It, right. It's a sacred object. Right. He's, right. he's making a religious object for for himself. Mm-hmm. It's very, mm-hmm. very different from uh, I've got the Guggenheim and yeah, I'm spiritual and that informs my work. But right. yeah, I, I think I understand what you mean. Yeah. Now, talking a little bit more about sort of art side or outsider art, art brute. Um, there is a like we said, there's a broad range of styles because it's more about the the social position and the motivations of the artist than it is about the work itself. But, um, you know. James Hampton's work, I think, does exemplify at least three attributes that we tend to see tend to show up in art brute or outsider art. And that is found objects, right? Because a lot of times they're, 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 you know, working in a psychiatric hospital or they're, they're home, semi homeless, and you're working with whatever is provided to you. It's, you know, willfully eventually he got enough attention he could probably request certain kinds of paints but but initially he probably was just making this out of whatever they had around right so that's one thing found objects another thing is um uh inspiration from experiences perceived as spiritual or religious um again not saying they aren't but just that's that's one of the things it stems from and then there's this other thing i noticed about hampton's work and also a lot of other uh Wolfley and many others is the notion of horror vacui are you familiar with this concept kevin so horror vacui translates to basically fear of emptiness and uh, when it comes to when it comes to art, it's about filling the entire space. It's about filling ma- maximalism. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in literature, we would call it we call it maximalism, but it's the same. It's the same motivation. It's to fill that entire piece up, fill that entire page. You're not you're not doing artful leveraging of white space to convey a certain effect, right? That's Mm. not that's not what we're doing here. Interesting. Um, And now it's not like Hampton or any of these people came up with this. Like Kevin, here's an example of horror, a great example of horror vacui from uh, a 1555 engraving by Jean Duvet called The Fall of Babylon. And you just click on that and check that out. Yeah. Horror yeah. vacui. Oh, this reminds me of Durer. Yeah. Uh, it's very Durer is also a horror, kind of horror vacui type, type artist. Right. Engraving, Every single engraving. Yeah. Right. Every single uh, bit of space is used for something. There's mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, but it's you don't just see it there. You also see it, and I'm going to send you another link. Uh, this is by an artist named Pablo uh, Amaringo, who paints uh, his ayahuasca visions. Okay. Very similar horror. Vacuum. Oh wow! Fill right. The yeah. Whole space. Wow. Everything has yeah. to be. Everything. Ha- just... Every pixel has to have a detail. Mm, yeah. This is trippy. Yeah. yeah. Now you also see it in the work of a lot of contemporary pop artists, like this link I'm about to send you from the artist Todd Shore. Brad will be okay. putting these on the YouTube. These will be in the uh, YouTube videos. Yeah. And yeah. I'll I'll have some links. I'll I'll put links to these in the uh show notes at artofdarkpod.com. Wow, yeah, this is wild. This is like kind mm-hmm. of almost like a cartoon, uh, but obviously, you know, brilliantly executed and very, very strange what I'm looking mm-hmm. at now here. What was this fellow's name? Uh this is Todd Shore. It's a it's a piece of work called The Spectre of Monster. Uh, mm, sorry, yeah. Specter of Monster Appeal, I think, is the full title of it. Kind of reminds yeah. me of uh, Bosch. There's a quality. Yeah, it's very Bosch. It's and, like a and cartoony. Bosch, mm. Yeah, Bosch is another horror kind of horror vacui. This sort of she's got to get everything has to have details to it, right? Now we don't just see a great it. name for an album, horror vacui. Yeah, yeah, that would be should. great. What yes. band though could possibly execute? You'd have horror to vacui. Well, you got to live up to that title, right? So it's just got to be wall of sound. Wall of sound. Yeah. 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 It'd be uh, you know maybe 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 Adam Lehrer's next uh, yeah. botched yeah, yeah, chatification. Yeah. I mean, right. far be it for me to give Adam Lehrer you know suggestions. Oh yeah, he doesn't need uh, any. He doesn't. He doesn't freaking need any guidance. <laughs> We gotta have we have to have that guy. We have to have that uh, that fellow back on. Of course, uh, yeah. Next yeah. year, yeah. Friend of the pod. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there's another thing too. Just kind of thinking. I don't have a link for this, but also think about this horror vacui concept of filling all the space. Also think about it. Say in the Vict- what our conception is of the design aesthetics of the Victorian era, right? Thick brocades, frills, like lace. All of these, like every kind of space is filled. Um, also arabesque decorations. If you're familiar with the sort of geometric arabesque, uh, style, that's also kind of this horror vacui thing. And, and my point here, well, I, I think it'll kind of, the point will make itself known. I also want to show you one other thing, Kevin, which is the book of Kells. Okay. I'm sending a link to that, which you're probably familiar with, right? Again, filling all that space, every inch every millimeter is significant and must be must be uh uh infused with meaning of some sort right and then you go back to the throne james hampton's the throne and it's very similar he's trying to fill everything there's a detail for every corner for every edge for every surface very little use of 
wood and sculpture would be white space. I mean, there's the space above the thing, right? But there's not really space between it. And even if there's space between two objects, you're looking through them to a, to an object behind them. It's it's a very it's one sort of uh, mass of of detail, right? Okay, so that's just sort of you know not knowing much about James Hampton, trying to figure out ways to talk about his work. I think this horror vacui thing is interesting. Of course, he was stricken with religious visions. Um, and for people who doubt that, you got to admit, at least he thought he was having religious uh, religious visions. Um, and, you know, yeah. And, and so, but there's more to talk about here as well. Because at the beginning, I gave a description of the throne as written by Stephen J. Gould. Um, Kevin, does that name ring a bell to you, Stephen J. Gould? When I think of Gould, I think of the pianist. Okay. Uh, so no, it might even be related. I don't know. Mm. Stephen J. Gould was sort of like if Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, came out of evolutionary biology instead of astronomy and actually conducted science, like did theoretical work. That's not shade at Tyson. Tyson doesn't do research. He's a popularizer, right? Stephen Fair J. Enough. Gould was like an actual practicing scientist and was, uh, but was in evolutionary biology. Um, he had over 300 articles in Natural History Museum, uh, sorry, Natural History Magazine, but he was also one of the men responsible for articulating the theory of punctuated equilibrium in evolutionary biology. And I'm not going to go into that, but. Um, uh Stephen Jay Gould taught at Harvard uh for many years. Uh, he hey, also uh, that's a good school. That is a yeah, good school. Yeah. He also taught at NYU. He was teaching at NYU and Harvard simultaneously while working at the American Museum of Natural History. Okay. Taking yeah. the train back and forth. Probably, yeah. right? Yeah. He he also appeared on an episode of The Simpsons. And that's how you know you made it. If it is in the 90s and you're on an episode of The Simpsons, you made it. Okay. Now, the name now, is starting to rattle around in my head yeah. a little more. Yeah, you might recognize a photo familiar. of him. Yeah. 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 I think he died in 98 or something like that. So we haven't, we don't really hear his name a whole lot anymore. But oh, man. in the mid 1980s. Imagine, imagine getting out of this shit show in 1998, man. <laughs> what a, what a blessing. That's the, that's the last copter uh, out of the world, man. <laughs> <laughs> Had a had a full life, did everything uh, possibly done, uh, you know. Just or... right when they plug us all into the internet, you're like, <laughs> adios. I've, I've seen enough. Yep. Yep. I gotta go experience some punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> That's right. I'm out. Now, mm. in the mid-1980s, and it might seem like an odd candidate for the person to have thought and written about the throne more than anyone else. Literally, nobody has thought more about the throne than Stephen Jay Gould. Mm. Um, he contributed an article to the first issue of Smithsonian Studies in American Art, and the title of this was James Hampton's Throne and the Dual Nature of Time. The thesis of this article is that Hampton's work was depicting an intricate, biblically resonant theory of time okay now in order to sort of understand his point gould's point we got to entertain a couple notions about the biblical account of time and this is this is stephen jay gould's idea you know i'd need to think about it i don't know if i actually understand the bible well enough to say whether he's right or not but what gould says is that basically the bible does this interesting thing and that is it it reinforces 
two broad cultural slash psychological conceptions of time. The first conception is what Gould and probably others would call time's arrow. That is, time goes in a direction. But it also, at the same time, the Bible does, reinforces the idea that time is a cycle. It does both of these things, is what he's saying. I don't think that's particularly heretical. Um, um, Let me read from Gould's article. Quote, In any case, since Western cultures have long lived in allegiance to both time's arrow and time's cycle, we should not be surprised that our primary document, the Bible, expresses both views with force and beauty. Time's arrow is the primary metaphor of biblical history. God creates the earth once, instructs Noah to ride out a unique flood in a singular ark, transmits the commandments to Moses at a distinctive moment, and sends his son to a particular place at a definite time to die for us on the cross and rise again on the third day. But the Bible also features an undercurrent of time cycle, particularly in the book of Ecclesiastes, where solar and hydrological cycles illustrate both the eminence of nature and the vanity of wealth and power, for riches can only degrade in a world of recurrence. Vanity of vanities. Okay. Now, how, according to Gould, Hampton has replicated this seemingly contradictory bimodal conception of what time is. Um, How does he do that? Here's Gould again. Um, Quote, the arrow of progressive and unrepeating history could be sketched in appropriate linear sequence from Old Testament history on the cathedral's north side. Uh, He's talking about just any cathedral, perpetually dark in northern hemisphere buildings. Um, Yeah. to Christ's life and resurrection on the sunlit south. So he's talking about how the architecture of old cathedral cathedrals reflected this biblical conception. Uh, but the cycle of time's eminence could also be expressed by an elaborate series of metaphorical correspondences between Old and New Testament events, recording the idea that each moment of Christ's life, while it moves history forward, also replays a previous event in the grand cycle of time. Thus, Mary, pregnant, may be juxtaposed with the burning bush because both held within themselves the fire of God, yet were not consumed. Jonah, issuing from the belly of the great fish, may be linked with Jesus rising from the tomb because both were cast into darkness, yet rose again on the third day. In the symbolic finest... time, symbolic mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the finest blend of time's arrow with time's cycle, the great window of uh, Chartres, uh South transept, the four gospel writers of the New Testament are shown as dwarves seated upon the shoulders of the prophets Isaiah, Jer- Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, back to Hampton. Hampton's throne follows the same tradition in dis- displaying time as both eminent and progressive. The idea of Hampton's pieces tells the linear tale of biblical te- history from Old Testament to Last Judgment, but their symmetry and the placement of the throne also express the unchanging and law-like character of time and the permanence of, su- of God's superintendence. If you're looking at the throne, the left half of it is Old Testament, the right half of it is New Testament. Back to Gould's article. Quote, Hampton's display of time's arrow follows the conventional placement of old and new with respect to divine power. The throne chair is is top and central in Hampton's composition. All pieces to the throne's left side record events of the Old Testament, focusing upon Moses and the law. All pieces to the right side treat New Testament themes of salvation and grace. Thus, in Hampton's throne, human history begins at, at the unfavored hand of Christ and moves in a circle around the composition to end in millennial sa- uh, salvation at the favored right hand. Okay. Um, 
that's I'm, I'm not gonna be able to say anything more interesting about the throne than that i don't think um i do want to talk a little bit about the writing i said earlier on that there's a notebook associated with the throne and we we do definitely want to write about it because it is also an art object of similar curiosity um i'm going to send you oh i didn't i meant to send you a link uh to this it, it's well, so fascinating. It's like yeah. it's like uh, like when an independent uh, musician releases a book with their album. You go, oh, this is freaking cool. What is going on here? Right, right, okay, right. somebody somebody had something to say. This is not right. this is not just uh, another you know whatever. Right, uh, just another right, album. Right. This is a this is an event. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm going to send you another link, Kevin, just so you can see this notebook. Um, it's the for I mean, it's the first image that pops up. The there. book of the seven dispensation. Yes. Wow. Yes. Again, this yes. will go into the uh, show notes at artofdarkpod.com. Yeah. So um, uh, this was written in a language of apparently divine origin. It's more than 100 pages of notes written over the course of at least a decade with no strong correspondences to any known script. I mean, if you look at it there at the top, it says St. James. Sometimes there's page numbers at the bottom. It says Revelation. But in between the actual body of the text, um, it's not in English and it's not in any other alphabet. And in fact, um, there have been many, many, many theories about what this thing even is. And it's not settled. But let's talk about a couple of them. Um, one theory is that this is a derivation of African religious practice. OK, um, there's this guy, Dennis Stalling, who's stallings who's invested a lot of time and energy into this um he looked into the african tradition of what's called protective writing and he thought at first that he saw some correspondences with um the scripts vi uh edinkra and uh nisbidi um these are kind of hieroglyphic scripts not meant to write so much detailed messages but kind of as an index of symbolic meanings and they're often used in textiles and art so if you one of these people who knows vi or adinkra or nisbidi they may have may they may wear, be wearing clothing with these very small symbols and those symbols mean very specific things um and it was thought that maybe this is what james hampton was doing was writing and said somehow learned one of these quote protective languages and was using that um, but it doesn't appear that he's using the same symbols as any of these scripts and any, any similarities appear to be just coincidental. Um, it's also been posited that Hampton was writing in what's called a uh, Gula. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Gula is a English based Creole spoken by, uh, descendants of slaves, uh, off the coast of South Carolina, basically. Um, there's still some Gula people around, not many, but there's still some. It's it's a it's a Creole. It's difficult for some um, some speakers of American English to totally understand it. Um, it borrows words from supposedly the uh, the Kakongo language spoken near the mouth of the Congo River. Um, might also have origins in uh, Sierra Leone or Liberia, which is interesting because we're going to talk about both Sierra Leone and Liberia in the Dennis Johnson episode for Patreon supporters. Um, it's um, going to be a long day. This is fascinating. This is a very interesting yeah. episode. Yeah, yes. I have tried, heard of Gula. I don't, okay. I wouldn't even know what it sounds like, but yeah. 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 Uh, no, we're, we're, we're almost done here. I just, this is mm. 
couple more things and we're, we're, we're out for the free episode. Um, now, it was determined that nobody could find any strong correspondences to, to Gula. It was just a thought. Hey, he's from South Carolina. Maybe he knew some of this. It doesn't turn out to be that's what he's writing. Um, now, in 2005, a couple computer scientists, this, uh, this guy Mark Stamp and another guy Ethan Lee from uh, San Jose State University, they used something called hidden Markov models to analyze this language. They refer to the language as Hamptonese. Um, they were trying to see what they could find. Um, okay, so what is a Markov hidden Markov model? Um, basically, it means that you assume there is a you, you analyze any um, data set, assuming that there's a Markov chain or a Markov, pro, Markov process going on. What is a Markov chain? A Markov chain occurs when you have what is called a stochastic situation where there's a sequence <laughs> of events. Uh, I got, oh yeah. man! Can you pull over? I got a stochastic situation. We I've only eaten Subway for six days, man. That's I'm that's that's feeling the... real stochastic. <laughs> real stochastic over here, bud. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I got, happens, I'm yeah. about to have a revelation yeah. myself. <laughs> Where's the rest stop? <laughs> That's really funny, though, because stochastic in this context means that events are probabilistically determined by previous events. Uh, so, yes. Uh, <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So huh. so it's a way that you could it, it would be a means that you could use. So if this were a um, if James Hampton's book was a um, a cipher, which basically means like a simple substitution. Um, you would be able to sort that that could be decrypted like simple substitutions were like, oh, every time you use an A, I draw a little a squiggly like this. And every time you use a D, I'd use a squiggly. Those can be those can be decrypted fairly simply. Um, there are methods to do this. And then there are methods to obscure that even further, a simple substitution. All attempts to decrypt this as though it were some kind of um, normal encryption have failed um the markov model thing is a, a degree more sophisticated to that and would allow you to um it might allow you to find dynamic rules so that things might change for instance the squiggle a equals squiggle might transform through the text to a equals another squiggle and the idea is that markov analysis would allow you to find those changes in rules and we're not going to get any more theoretical than that that failed and didn't really show anything it could be that james hampton was writing what's called a one-time pad encryption and one-time pad encryption is it's un unencryptable or it's un you can't decrypt it because it's basically based on having a key so it's like you and I, Kevin, if we had an encoded message, we would agree on how things translate um, and a complicated rule set. And only you and I have the rules. And if the rule set's complicated enough, you cannot solve it without the key. All right. OK, so it could be that. Sounds like it sounds like a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> she knows what I mean. <laughs> I know what she at, means. At least I think yeah. she knows. <laughs> she should know what I mean by now. Why doesn't right. she know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, uh, 
when you find yourself asking that question, the follow-up question is, do I know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't. Uh, <laughs> Um, and, and ultimately, anyway, through this encryption, this process, and a lot of uh, computational power was thrown at trying to figure out what the heck James Hampton was writing about. The ultimate result is our best guess is it's the written equivalent of speaking in tongues. They determined that it's structured like English in some ways, like the English alphabet, English language, like it's structured like a language, but they have no idea what any of it says. Um. So I just find that fascinating that there's this book of a hundred pages yeah, that this a, guy wrote. Potentially, I mean, it sounds like he's writing in tongues. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And I was looking at the cover of the book, and let me let me read what the cover yeah. says. Oh yeah, and some yeah. of it some of it's misspelled. Oh uh, yeah, you know. Was, well, you have to understand he was not particularly well educated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it says Saint James, and of course that's not as radical as you'd maybe think. Like. Catholics and, and other denominational Orthodox and Lutherans, you know, we believe that uh, every every faithful person is a saint, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in heaven. They're 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 not worthy of the the same veneration that we would give a formal capital S saint uh, kind of person mm -hmm. as a day. But we have All Saints Day that you know the day after Halloween where we honor all of the. The, the saints and my uh, my understanding through my catechesis is that we believe that you know the saints are present at the communion uh mm -hmm. that it's it's uh it's a real spiritual thing so that's what you aspire to as even as a Catholic is to you right. know when the saints go marching in baby let's right. go right. uh you want to be in that number and yeah. uh so you know uh, for people who are not uh you know, familiar with these ideas uh, you know him calling himself Saint James is not uh, necessarily um, aggrandizing, it's probably aspirational. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it says, uh, St. James, first, I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, Lord, uh, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, uh, dead, and buried. What? What does it say? And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, very similar to something we say at mass uh, every Sunday. Yeah, so, it's a it's a uh, it's a sort of a modification of the Apostles Creed, right? Or the Nicene mm -hmm. Creed. I mean, yeah, at least yeah. it has some of the same stuff in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Now, honestly, this is about all there is, I think, to say about the work about James Hampton and the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. I strongly encourage people who haven't seen it to take a look at the work, get a high, get that high resolution version and zoom in on it. Um, there's, I, I just found this story fascinating. You know, this a visionary working as a janitor and some no-name government office building in Washington D.C. just steps from the White House. He could have he could have walked to the White House and back on his lunch break. Um, it was a man who thought daily about what it would mean for Christ to return and for the revelation to be true, and what a person ought to do with themselves if the re if if Christ is coming back any day now. How should you spend your time? And James Hampton's version of that was you build him a throne. It's beautiful. It, it, it is. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And and you can imagine him just the 
imagine the hours and hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours of labor and what it meant to him spiritually. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely, lovely story. Fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. How did you hear about this fellow, Brett? I don't remember when I first came. I've known, I've been aware of him for a long time. I've obviously no, didn't know anything about him. I couldn't tell you how I became aware of him. Um, I, I was reminded of him when we were talking about doing, gosh, how did I think? I don't even, I don't know. It's a mystery, Kevin. Brad doesn't know. Yeah, he had a revelation. (laughs) Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Are we winding down the James Hampton core episode? Is that it? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, the the unfortunate part of so little being known about his life is I can't really paint you the sort of dramatic, cinematic life story of the man. We just don't have enough details, frankly. Um, Ah. But. You yeah. gave a very rich picture, and we took some detours, and we had yeah. we had a, a few laughs along the way, and that's yeah. a, an Art of Darkness core episode. Every yeah. episode, every core episode doesn't need to be a six-hour no. Alistair Crowley episode. No. And that, some of them should be, though. Yeah, some of them need to be. Others <laughs> could be two hours. Wait, yeah. we make the rules, and that's right. sometimes we make the rules independently. Like like you decided <laughs> that we're going to do a core episode. For the after dark, yeah, for Patreon at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. So Brad and I are gonna wind this down. Mm-hmm. We're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back on Patreon and release the we're gonna record and release the Dennis Johnson episodes. So yeah. if you're already a Patreon supporter, you're gonna get a double banger. You're yeah. gonna get you get a banger on the left, a banger on the right. <laughs> right. You're already in. You're ready for the book club. You're ready for the Blood Meridian meeting on December third, twenty twenty three. And if you're listening to this, because these are evergreen episodes, if you're if yes. you're listening to this in the distant distant future, don't feel like you've missed out because we record those book club meetings, and you can mm-hmm. always listen back, and you'll you'll get. Uh, Aaron Gwynn's singular insights into Blood Meridian. Brad and I are going to wrap with him. And then we have some of our Patreon friends from the book club will we'll join in the discussion. And that'll Ooh. be evergreen too, because Blood and, Meridian is not changing. Yeah. And you book you book club folks who join us every time I'm 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 always overwhelmed and impressed by like what people bring to the table, the stuff that they want to talk about, the insights they have. I always end up learning a lot. It, it I, you know, it's, I, I really enjoy doing that. So good. Yeah. It, it's a legitimately fun thing. It's not just mm-hmm. like, oh, Brad and I are, oh, what else can we do for Patreon? It's like, no, right. let's have a book club. And, you know, next year we're going to do six books for the club. Mm-hmm. We've got yeah. a full schedule planned yes. for season four of Art of Darkness coming in 2024. We're starting with uh, Burroughs because yeah. we decided we have to, because if you go all the way back, if you're an Art of Darkness maximalist, if you have yeah. a, if you have horror vacui for <laughs> you must Art of Darkness. every second of Art of Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of what it's like to be a broadcaster because you can't have any dead air. I mean, no, broadcasting right. is horror vacui for sure. Mm-hmm. If I, if we sat st- silently for five seconds, it would feel like torture. Uh, uh, it'd be like somebody ringing out a dirty rag over your head is sort of how it feels um as a as a broadcaster and then never mind the listeners but um we decided you go all the way back and listen to Burroughs. We decided, hey, we didn't really know what we were doing. It's nobody's fault. Uh we were just trying the show out. So Brad is gonna bring the the proper AOD treatment for William Seward yeah. 
Burroughs. I was just looking uh, for the biography. I bought the Barry Miles biography, which is like a thousand pages. So we're going to have. Oh, some. it's going to be fun. And I'm yeah. going to do Fitzgerald part two, because of course we did Fitzgerald part one for our live show here in St. Paul in 2023. And Brad, I think we maybe announced the the subject for the Detroit live show, but it sounds like you're maybe thinking about a change. You want to yes. talk about that? Yeah, we we did announce it. And, and if you were really stoked about that, I apologize because I think we're moving to a, uh, I don't want to say a better subject because the one we were going to talk about was a great man and a great artist, but we're going to talk about in the Detroit live show in 2024, date to be determined, we're going to talk about Harry Houdini, who died in Detroit after performance on Halloween. That is going to be awesome. And I have to, I have to say, I think I've already mentioned that my, my own personal family is going to be getting bigger, but we are expecting another uh child so that's going to impact the scheduling of the live show initially we were thinking around doing it around the time that is now the due date so we're gonna have to we'll we'll actually we'll look at the calendar we'll Well, figure it out kevin we do it in spooky season (laughs) yeah oh that would make that would make more sense wouldn't it yeah Yeah. why not we could we could almost do I don't know if we do a Halloween show, but we could do it right around there. That's smart. I like the yeah. way you're thinking. Brad yeah, we'll, we'll talk more. We'll talk more about that. But look forward to that. Now, in the after dark, I don't even know if this is technically an after dark episode because it's going to be the art of darkness treatment. I, of I'm Dennis saying Johnson. it right now. It's yeah. not. It's not yeah. an after dark. It is a, a special Patreon only core episode yeah. that Brad has decided to do. Yeah. And listen, I support him. I support him on uh, uh, almost un- almost unconditionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, here let me explain the logic to it because it's not right. just like oh I want to talk about somebody let's talk about Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson had a collection of all of his poetry and he titled it The Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. Oh. And while Dennis Johnson was working on Tree of Smoke, his masterpiece, one of the It may not be, I'm always loathe to say the best, but it's among the great American novels put out in my lifetime. Incredible novel. He wrote, he had uh, at least two little uh, notes up at his workstation. One of them was a quote from Emerson, quote, God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. I love that. Yeah, Um, banger. And then another, he had a photo of the throne that we've been talking about. And then his own words, he said, quote, if I'm some kind of James Hampton and this is some kind of throne of the third heaven, if it's 2000 pages and 200 years, so be it. So this is why we're going to talk about Dennis Johnson for Patreon only. The connection is real tenuous, but real. That doesn't sound tenuous at all. Yeah, it sounds right. immediate and direct. Yes. Much like my appeal now for your support yeah. for Patreon. It is the very best way to support the pod. Mm-hmm. Brad and I put in the work, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. You get a lot of good stuff. You're going to get this bonus episode. I got another kid coming, another child Woo-hoo. coming. Uh, you're going you know, to name it Art? I'm going to name it uh, Brad. <laughs> That's a lot it's of pressure. It's gonna be the first, uh, the first, the first female Brad born in the state of Minnesota. Um, no, I have so we're still batting some names around, and it's it's still early days. So oh, yeah. you know, we we just hope for the best. Um, yeah. you know, God willing, and mm-hmm. uh, 
But really, truly, we we appreciate the existing support. If you can generously support the podcast, it will motivate Brad and I. It means a lot to us. Just having an audience, having listeners means a lot. But then that material support is that that like next level kick in the ass that says, hey, I like this show. I want this show to, to exist a year from now three years from now, five years from now. The best way to do it is just subscribe to Patreon, set it and forget it. Some people like to do one-off PayPals. Those are fine too. We're not going to say yeah. no uh, to your to your lucre. Uh, artofdarkpod.com, the link is there. You can't miss it. Uh, but really, truly, Patreon is where it's at. It's a simple subscription. It takes 10 minutes to set up. You set it and forget it, and it's the cost of one of those crummy uh, iced coffee. It's like the cost of a of a couple of bottled waters now uh, <laughs> at the gas station is sort of the the entrance price to get in the door. And That's I know right. we hammer this a lot, but uh, you know it, it's important, and it mm-hmm. it really motivate motivates us to keep the show going. Brad, anything mm-hmm. else you want to say about that? No, that's it. That's it. Well, check out. We got to ask his work. Yeah. yeah, check it out. I put I'm gonna put the links in the show notes. We gotta answer the closing question, which is what is mm. what would James Hampton be doing now? And I think he would still be building the throne. I don't think, I think there's some mystery. I think he just builds the throne until the return of the savior. And then the work never ends. Yeah, I think that's it. All right, we'll be back. <laughs> what more can you say about this? What more can you say? 